Hey guys, it's your host, Johnny D. And this is your co-host, Brent Baxter. We wanted to share some big news with you. The Climb Show Music Business Podcast is now a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. That's right. We're really excited to be part of this network along with some other amazing podcasts. So make sure you check it out at americansongwriter.com forward slash podcast or click the link in the episode notes to listen to some of the best shows in music. All right, Johnny, go do your thing. Welcome to the Clown! This is a show dedicated to helping singers, songwriters, and indie artists like you create leverage in the music business. Leverage is what you're going to need in the new music business. The days of the record label finding the diamond in the rough and investing millions to create a brand are over. You're going to have to have a little bit more track record now. You're going to have some business underneath you to get that management deal, to get that record deal, to get that investor, to get that publishing deal. They want to know that you can do it, that you know how to play the game. That's why we called it the climb. C-L-I-M-B, creating leverage in the music business. See what we did there? That was brilliant. That's a Baxternum from a good friend and co-host, Mr. Brent Baxter. Brent's an award-winning hit songwriter with cuts by Alan Jackson, Randy Travis, Lady Antebellum, Joe Nichols, and more. And he helps songwriters like you turn pro by revealing how you can write like a pro, do business like a pro, and on the regular He'll get you connected to the pro so you can get a chance of creating a relationship. You can find Brent very easily at songwritingpro.com. Once again, that's songwritingpro.com. And I would like to introduce you to my co-host, Johnny Dwinell. Johnny owns Daredevil Production. They're breaking artists digitally by identifying new fans through data. Listen, if you're an artist looking to increase your streams, blow up your video views, sell more live show tickets, and get discovered by new fans, TV and music industry pros, then Daredevil Production can help. Daredevil has worked with multi-platinum artists like Colin Ray, Tracy Lawrence, Ty Herndon, and Andy Griggs, just to name a few. You can find Johnny at DaredevilProduction.com. That is production singular, no S, and there is no S because there is no other. Johnny D, what's up, brother? How you doing, man? I'm excited. I'm excited because neither of us have to talk a lot today. I know. Our guest thinks he's not going to talk that much, but we're going to... Pull it out of him. Ride him hard and put him away wet. Yeah. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. Today we have a guest, Noah Gordon. He's the head of AR and VP of Publishing at Average Joe's Entertainment, home of Colt Ford, Eddie Montgomery, Sam Grow, and several others. And we'll introduce him properly in just a moment, but we just want to let y'all know he's waiting in the wings. So y'all stick around through the rest of this intro. Right on. Before we do that, let's take care of a little business here. Join the Climb community if you haven't done so already. You got to ask to be let in, but we let everybody in. Just be good boys and girls when you get in there. But this is a thriving Facebook community of singers, songwriters, indie artists, and making relationships, asking questions, marketing questions, songwriting questions, publishing questions. We got co-writers connecting on different continents and creating and getting cuts and stuff, which I'm excited about. That's pretty cool. This is a great place to be. We want to see you there. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so, wherever you consume podcasts. We're trying to get to 200 ratings and reviews, so please leave that if you can. And we're going to read it on the air if you leave a review, by the way. We're hoping for a five-star, but if you give us a two or a one, we've had that happen. At least make it entertaining. We'll own it, yeah. We're going to read it anyway. <laughs> That's right. We're going to read it. And then finally, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about it, guys. This podcast exists because we want you to win. So if you have a fellow songwriter or another indie artist or a singer, and they're trying to get their bearings and get their head around what's changed in the new music business, then 
send them here. I mean, if it comes from you, it's 100% true. If it comes from us, it's 50% true, right? Right. That's right. Hey, I just want to spotlight one of the new heights in the Climb Community Facebook group. This is from just a little bit back, uh, Keith Gill Jr., he said, just got recognized by NSAI professional as a one to watch. So it may not be a big deal to some, but it's huge to me. So I think it's a big deal, Keith, because that's part of that climb, that creating leverage in the music business, starting to make fans, starting to get people to notice you. So Heck congrats yeah. on that and Way putting your song out there. Yeah. Come on. That's right. I love it. Well, let's dig in with Mr. Noah Gordon here. Tell us a little bit about him, Brent, before we All right. Over. Today's guest is a country singer, songwriter, producer, music publisher, and label executive. A musician since childhood, he was signed to an artist deal on Capitol Records by the legendary Jimmy Bowen, where he released several singles. And by the way, I saw him perform on a flatbed trailer in a Walmart parking lot in Batesville, Arkansas in the 90s. It was glorious, as was his mullet. He has written and or produced for several artists, including Charlie Daniels, Randy Travis, Montgomery Gentry, Colt Ford, Clay Walker, Craig Morgan, multiple number one singles on Canadian country artist Jason Blaine. And more. Currently, our guest is head of AR and VP of Publishing at Average Joe's Entertainment, which is home of Colt Ford, Eddie Montgomery, Sam Grow, and several other artists. Noah Gordon, welcome to the climb. Welcome, Noah. Hey, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Noah, there are several things we'd love to cover with you today. Well, let's cover the mullet first. The mullet first, yes. <laughs> the mullet, no, I'm just joking. But do thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate that. Well, it's one of my favorite <laughs> memories of you. It's one of those where, you know, I was into country music and writing and wanting to make it in there one day. And then GAC or CMT was doing a tour of Walmart parking lots or something. Yeah, in conjunction with a few different channels, and I know Walmart was big on it. I was happy to be a part of it, and all the fans that came out to the shows were a pretty amazing group. So it now almost seems like a DVD or movie I watched on Netflix. It's been so long ago. (laughs) But I do remember it being incredibly hot in the middle of the summer. Yeah, it was cool because it got artists out to towns that normally didn't get, other than the county fair and every year in August, we didn't really get much in the way of singers coming through town so it was pretty cool to roll up at the super center parking lot and then years later i'm like oh i know that guy we might have to go back to it if the coronavirus thing keeps on man it's a heck of a venue that's true yeah i know some walmarts are starting to do drive-in theaters i heard of a couple of them starting to do that like big blow-up screens or whatever and go park in the parking lot and watch a drive-in they're just trying to get people around so yeah maybe Absolutely. it was just ahead of its time i want to go check that out ahead of its time <laughs> It was definitely a lot of fun. You know, with country music, maybe unlike a lot of other genres, I think we're the only genre that has what used to be called fanfare. I guess it's CMA Fest these days. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. just if you're a big fan, man, you can go once a year and pretty good chance if you're willing to stand in line for a long time. Mm -hmm. You get your favorite artist, shake their hand, get a picture with them, signed autograph. I mean, it's a pretty interesting genre that we live in. And that was one of the cool things that way back then that I got to do because it was definitely hands on. Yeah, that's awesome. And no, I don't want you to feel bad about the mullet. I went full on with the long hair and a hairband thing. So you're good. good. (laughs) Okay. Well, I've got crazy long hair right now, mostly because I can't afford to get it cut. But (laughs) it's uh, just dang near everybody had one at one point. And it's funny to see it coming back. It's like bell bottoms or something. Eventually, Mm -hmm. we'll all be wearing bell bottoms again. (laughs) I had feathered hair in seventh grade. It was as feathered as I could get it. And it was not good. (laughs) <laughs> not a good set of it. Those wings weren't getting me anywhere, but I never quite achieved liftoff, but I tried. <laughs> They're terrific until a gust of wind shows up and then <laughs> back to the drawing board on that one. 
And everyone's going, what? So anyway, no, our goal for today is to inspire, educate, and challenge the climbers out there who want to make it in the music business. And that's the goal. So I'd love to start off with talking about your current position at or positions at Average Joe. Sounds like you do a little bit of everything over there. So what, for the climbers out there, what does head of A&R and VP of publishing actually do? Like what takes up your day? Well, it's a lot of different things and you're correct. We're a small company and so most of us wear more than one hat. A lot of my day is made up actually producing artists. I don't produce every artist on the record label, but I do produce most of them and or portions of projects on most of the artists. So my day really looks a lot like most producers day, which is going to the studio, working with the full band, working with the artist. And then after the fact, I'm actually thankful that I've been able to put almost all the software that I need on my laptop because I'm able to do a ton of work on that editing and also sing background vocals on almost everything that I produce. And so most of the reason I do that is because I'm always available when I need a singer. <laughs> all right. You're there anyway. Right? <laughs> Which is handy, you know, and just a lot of reasons. I do a lot of stuff myself in engineer, not every single thing, but it's handy. It's also cost effective. It doesn't cost the artist more money. It doesn't cost the label more money. And you don't always have to have an engineer and a second engineer and a room full of people in order to accomplish the same or similar uh, results. Sure. So my day, most of it these days, it didn't start out that way, but Early on at Average Joe's, when I climbed on board, they had me producing artists and writing with their artists. And then it wasn't long until I was producing a lot of the records. And just for the reasons we just talked about, it's economical. And I love that part. My favorite thing, really, about being an artist back in the day, sure, doing those shows at the Walmarts <laughs> with the mullet was a shining moment. But the biggest part of it that I really enjoyed was the making of the music, the writing of the songs. And a producer's job also kind of comes into play when you're talking about arrangements. So mm -hmm. editing, sometimes those demos, even if the song is completely finished, sometimes the right arrangement can make or break it. And so getting involved in that and then all the other things. And I just fell in love with the recording studio and tried to learn as much as I can. I tell most people in my artist days, honest to goodness, was really just a paid education in mm -hmm. how to make records. I got to work with some terrific producers, Steve Gibson and Chuck Howard and several other people along the way, publishing deals and whatnot. But it's hard to get good at something without doing a lot of it. Yeah. You know, if we framed houses for a living, my first few houses, no doubt, would leak and lean. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> over time, you get to where you can build a really solid foundation and a good house with a good roof on it. And then it's more about, okay, what are we going to build today? It isn't a matter of can you build it. It's how are we going to build it. Mm -hmm. The story of Average Joe's, I had started a studio roughly a decade ago called Big Studios with my buddy T.W. Cargyle. And the first album that got cut in our studio was the Jamie Johnson album that had In Color on it and all that great stuff that just nice. Jamie had been around, but that was when he really blew up big. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, I had a studio and it was so busy, I couldn't get into my own studio. I ended up working at other people's studios more <laughs> than my own. But that's how I met all the people at Average Shows. Jamie Johnson was one of the first artists to work with Colt Ford and he told Colt when they were working on his first record, if you're doing a country record, man, you guys need to come to the studio. This is where you need to work. And so they literally showed up on my doorstep. And at that point, 
I averaged those records was Colt Ford and Shannon Houchins, who's the CEO, and his cell phone. And my lobby, when his cell phone died, he'd walk around my parking lot talking on the phone. And then when his battery was about dead, he'd come into my reception area and plug it in and sit in the chair. <laughs> so that's how long I've known the guys. Yeah, And it's a great way to meet people. It's incredibly organic. So way before we were actually in business together, we knew each other pretty well and had already dug on the music that we made separately. That's awesome. With the A&R stuff, the production stuff, and having been an artist, I'm not a performing songwriter, so I'm not out there playing shows. I'm definitely not an artist. But one thing I have to think about is going, these songs, if I do my job right, will get performed in front of thousands and thousands of people. And artists that are smart are thinking, this needs to be something that goes over well live. You think your experience being an artist on the road, because I think of Average Joe's as very much based on live shows, like getting out there to the people. And do you think that helps that mentality of going, okay, this is meant to be played in front of people. How's this going to go over live? Like when people are writing songs or sending songs into you, how does that factor in, you think? Honest to goodness, I think it's everything. I feel fortunate to have gotten to experience so many facets of the music business, the business side and the making of the music and the live component, because you're correct. It, it's a big part of our business model at Average Joe's. That and really social media, new media, all the things that are internet related that really mm. didn't exist, certainly not to the point they are now, back when the company started. At that point, it was still traditional record stores and radio. And because of the nature of a lot of music, not all the music, but a lot of it was sort of a hybrid music of rap music and country music, just wasn't accepted in the traditional formats, mm -hmm. like traditional radio and traditional TV, video shows and stuff. Just didn't embrace it the way we had hoped they would initially. And that forced us to find other ways to do it. Obviously, live has always been a giant opportunity for any artist or record label to sell product and get out and expose it. But the internet is the ultimate way to do that. I and mean, you can be instantly worldwide, but we were fortunate enough to build average Joe's got built in a time. I would say it was kind of previous to most of the major labels really pivoting and really hitting the internet and the social media side real hard up until that point. It seems like, you know, everything was, like I said, the traditional ways of getting music out. And they maybe hired a kid out of college and put him in a cubicle and said, okay, you're our internet guy. And we'll do <laughs> right. whatever that thing is, you know. And so they hadn't, they hadn't really focused on it. I don't think they'd spend a ton of resources on at that time, which gave us free reign mm -hmm. and way, way, way less competition at that point. Of course, everybody at this point, I'm not telling you guys anything, everybody, most of the business, if not the majority of the business happens online for streaming, but we were just fortunate to have been forced into that initially and just made great relationships that continue to this day. Yeah, I remember back in, it was like 2005 probably or 2006 where I got a cut on a new artist on RCA, got a song recorded. So I was excited about it. So I'm like, oh, let's look this guy up and see. Didn't have a website. There wasn't as much social media. It was 2005, but right. I couldn't find the guy. I was like, oh, that's not promising. And sure enough, that record never came out. <laughs> so I was like, oh boy, how are they not doing this? It's a funny thing because I think Taylor Swift might be a good example of certainly an amazing amount of success and an amazing amount of success at radio and all the mm -hmm. traditional outlets. But I would say, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but an enormous amount of her success, her music consumption was due to the internet, was due mm -hmm. to interacting with fans in that arena 
as much or more so even her early success. You know, if you segregated or took the Internet away from her success, I think it would have been far less. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all those artists like herself really blazed a trail in that regard. But I think it's interesting, man. I'm all for it. The main reason I'm also all for the Internet is this. It gives you the opportunity to get a ton of music out there, and it gives you an opportunity to connect with literally every fan nationwide. Now, that's not an easy task, but you, mm-hmm. everybody has the ability to do that. Then you got to go to work and figure out how to do it. Yeah, one thing Johnny says a lot is distribution is not marketing. Just because it's available doesn't mean anybody's going to know about it. No. Because everything's available. Nowadays, you're essentially not forced to listen to things. There were essentially three TV channels, maybe one on the UHF dial if you got lucky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a handful of radio stations. There were probably seven or eight stations that really came in great. A couple of Mm -hmm. them were rock, a couple of them were country, and a couple of talk radio. I don't know. I never listened to those as a kid. (laughs) But (laughs) I know they were talking every time I went to that (laughs) station. So that's why I kept going. But Probably getting like the corn report. Yeah, and the hog reports. The hog reports. I remember some of that. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. Well, because you're from like Southern Illinois. Is that right? Absolutely, man. We get the hog Yeah, so you probably reports. got all that commodity stuff. And <laughs> Yeah. Well, my favorite part of all of those years was getting to go to the fair, and you'd always have like a crash-up derby right before the entertainment. So everybody's ears were completely blown out, right? <laughs> yeah. Or the tractor pull first or something. So you couldn't hear anything. And then, okay, now here's your favorite music act. Go play. You know? <laughs> yeah, everybody's like half deaf. Makes me sound better. I got a couple questions for you, Noah. Lay it on me. Because you've been speaking Johnny's language. I'll just warn you right now. Oh, my goodness sakes. Yeah. My nipples are hard. Is that wrong? Like, I'm <laughs> sorry. I didn't even know that. But, <laughs> but now that we're on the subject. No, <laughs> on the note, you were mentioning Taylor Swift. And I think that. Taylor Swift was maybe one of the first artists who, at the time that she broke, was right when that social media thing was happening. You know, to validate your point, she was really, really big on MySpace Mm -hmm. before she got her deal. That was a big part of how that whole thing was able to get worked out. But then she was an artist that enjoyed the blessings of being able to amass an audience for her on broadcast platforms like radio TV and touring. And then at the same time, she was young enough to really understand the digital platform. And you're right. She's worked both of them extremely well. She knows exactly what she's doing. And I'm curious as to what your biggest challenge is or what maybe you frame it in the way of, is it a challenge for the label? Do you see it's more of a challenge for the artist? But there's a difference between working social media with an artist that already has an audience from a broadcast platform and then trying to break an artist on digital. That pivot right there, because they're two different platforms, they're two different animals, two different saddles, they eat two different things. you got to know the difference to make them work. What's been your biggest challenge with that, either with your artist's biggest challenge or the label's biggest challenge, navigating that 180-degree turn? Good question. And, you know, I'm probably not the best, certainly not the best person to ever Joe's to answer that question because I spend most of my time making the music, not necessarily marketing it and promoting it and growing those careers. But I can tell you that the hardest thing really is just multiplying the success. So you got to start somewhere, especially if you've got an artist that doesn't really have any kind of traditional 
exposure. And I would say that kind of that's where we started from. We have had some songs, obviously, with Montgomery Gentry. We had some radio successes and some more traditional successes. But by and large, most of the successes that we've been able to have certainly not started at the traditional outlets. I think the hardest thing that I have seen for us as a company is that when we started out, we were so lucky that there was like this four lane interstate of the internet and we were one of the few people that were on it. Mm-hmm. All the fans are on it. All the people were beginning to get on it. But as far as the major record labels, you know, they might have had a toe in that water and some in that water. But I also think that a lot of it was kind of relegated to the artists. Like you just said, Taylor Swift and MySpace. I think that's sort of a thing that the artists do in order to help promote and help expand their own brand, their own business, which helps us as a record label, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't see that initially, necessarily, that the record labels are going big guns into that space. And there's still big guns into the traditional space, into traditional radio and traditional yeah. outlets. And I don't know if they didn't do that because they didn't see the fruits of it yet, or they didn't have the money appropriated yet. I find a lot of things happen because the person that has a hold of the purse strings has some to gain by not doing something most of the time. Yeah, fair enough. I wanted to commend you too, because you do have quite a few artists that have an amazing amount of success that aren't on the radio, largely. And I think it's very interesting how you guys have found your way. And I think another big part of that pivot issue, and you're absolutely right, the guy with the purse strings has something to gain doing it the other way. There's that factored in. But also, I think that it's so foreign. It's a foreign platform. And when you're really good at the broadcast platform and understanding how that machine works, it's harder. And you're loaded up with a bunch of artists already who have an audience. Absolutely. That came from broadcast platform. You're not necessarily being forced to pivot into that. I wonder what you think about this, but... As an indicator, and I could be off here, but one of the things that had me scratching my head was that in 2017, the top 10 grossing tours that year, two of the artists were over the age of 75 that have been on the radio for 50 years plus. (laughs) That was the Stones and Paul McCartney. Five of the artists were over the age of 55 and had 30-year brand names. They've been on the radio for 30 years. That was Guns N' Roses, Garth, U2 on the 30-year anniversary of the Joshua Tree. I forgot the other two, but one of the artists, he had a 19-year or 17-year brand name. But anyway, my point being that 30 years ago, 1987, top 10 grossing tours, the old guy was David Bowie with a 20-year-old brand name. And three of the artists that were in their 30s, which had 11-year-old brand names, were Alabama, Boston, and Huey Lewis in the News, and everybody else had a brand name that was less than five or six years old. That was U2 with the Joshua Tree, their fourth release. That was Whitney Houston's first release. Madonna, Who's That Girl, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi. And Michael Jackson's Bad was in there as well. And you could argue he had a longer run, but I mean, even the labels separated him. I'm just curious about, is that show the challenge we're having with radio right now? I would say this in general, the hardest thing to do in the world is to make somebody famous. Mm-hmm. Now, it's easier right now because if something were to happen to go viral, then millions and millions, maybe billions of people would see something, right? But that's a fluke. You can't build a business on a fluke. That's right. So the hardest thing, I think the people that win the biggest are the artists that already had some level of success, if not a significant amount of success, 
before the internet came along and they were able to use the internet as just a magnifying glass mm-hmm. and maybe a microscope also. So you get both ends of it, the bookends, you get out to everybody and you also get to dig deep with your super fans, which is two things that never would have happened without the internet. Right. That's a huge question really. And I'm not even sure what to answer first, but I will say this. When I moved to Nashville and just taking country music, there were essentially 25 record labels that had full staffs, full promotion teams, full A&R teams. And at any given minute, seven to 10 new artists that they were going to cut a record on, maybe do a video on, and it was coming out every year. So you got 25 labels times, let's just say five artists. So you got 125 new artists in country a year that the fans are going to get a chance to see or hear. Now, not all of those artists are going to have huge hits. Not all those artists are going to have careers. 10% might have any kind of longevity. But an enormous amount of new music was going to get exposed on a big level. Like Millions of people are going to get to check it out. Now, there are roughly five record labels in Nashville with the same numbers. So let's just say all five of those labels are going to release five new artists. So 25 new artists are really going to get a shot at breaking through a year, give or take. And those are numbers, but that's just me seeing it for what it is. And so instead of the fan out there getting exposed to, say, 125 new artists with an honest-to-goodness shot at having a career, they now get exposed to 25. Mm -hmm. And so the Internet, even though it has made, just back to your point of distribution, is not your marketing thing. It's all available, but nobody knows it's there until you tell them. Right. Yeah. 25 artists get a chance to be known. Essentially, the fan is getting exposed to way, way less music. Mm-hmm. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. They have access to everything. And I say that most of the time when they have access to everything, they're not necessarily looking to go find something new. Maybe the young kids are, but I think the a little bit older generation, certainly mm-hmm. more country fans, 
man, they're interested in, well, I wonder what happened. What's that? My favorite Kenny Rogers song or a Ray mm-hmm. song. They're spending their extra time looking for music that stuff they already love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, they are getting exposed to new stuff, but I think the problem is how do you get a new artist exposed? Because there's so much stuff out there. There's one side of the coin. So why are those artists, the big ones, are having huge successes is because, once again, the hardest thing to do is make somebody famous. They're already famous, so they've got a huge leg up on everybody else. Mm-hmm. Sure. There are genres within genres, and right now, there are songs that are essentially number one in any number of categories, and the three of us have never even heard of. Right. Sure. Yeah. And there's millions <laughs> of fans out there. And it's an enormous business. People that are completely committed to this music and to these artists, and it's part of their life. And it's bizarre because when we grew up, if something was a hit, we all knew about it. Out of your math class or your homeroom class, if there was a song that was a hit on the radio, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that hadn't heard it. Right, yeah. yeah. That was the power of broadcast, like you said, the captive audience. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but as you said, the segmentation, because there's so many choices now. Do you remember the big final episode of Seinfeld was this big overblown Super Bowl-esque type of media (laughs) extravaganza? And because they had the largest audience in the decade of the 90s for that show, and everybody was really excited about it. But comparatively speaking, that audience for the last episode of Seinfeld didn't even come close to a third-rate, bottom-of-the-barrel sitcom about to be canceled in 1978 when there was only three channels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a mind-blow to think about that, you know? <laughs> right now, you can be on The Tonight Show, one of these giant, what we would consider like this is the Taj Mahal of getting exposed, mm-hmm. but the viewership is tiny. In comparison to what it was when Johnny Carson or Jay Leno was running the show, you know, completely different. So, yeah, this is a prime example. The three of us, we're going to start a record label tomorrow and we're each putting in $10 million. And we got the opportunity to sign somebody that's an awesome new unheard act, totally deserving of a deal, totally deserving of a career or somebody that's already had an enormous amount of success, but has a lot of years left in them. I know exactly who we're betting our $30 million on. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Because we're actually not betting our $30 million. We're just partnering with somebody that already has a business who's already proven successful. Leverage. Leverage. Yeah. yeah. We should start a podcast. Something about leverage <laughs> in the music business? <laughs> it just came to me. That just happened right there. <laughs> Boom. Hey, I'm glad I'm here because I'll take credit. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Word for a third. Yeah. There we go. I, love it. I think also on the other end of that, for the new people coming up, you know, they're competing and you have using your analogy of some young unknown artist that is perfectly talented and deserving of a deal. And maybe they're competing for a spot on a roster with another young, unknown, perfectly deserving of a deal artist that is already building their audience. Mm-hmm. Who has the leverage there? That's what we talk about a lot, too, is going, yeah, if, if you're unknown, it's too late to already be known. So you got to build it. When was the best time to get famous? Well, 20 years ago. But <laughs> right. you got to start working on that now. And that's what, you know, and please speak to it because that's your life, A&R, and doing that stuff with the labels. How much does that factor into who you're going to partner with and who you're going to work with as an artist, like how they get on your radar? Well, I mean, I think it's changed a lot. The average shows initially came along really prior to being able to really track a whole bunch of successes online Mm -hmm. yet 
plus the tools, let's face it, the back-end tools that we have that every artist has access to or record label to be able to see not just, oh, how many views do you have, but who are these people that are doing it? Why are they doing it? Where are they, where they come from? Where are they going from here? What are they interested in? So there's a lot of other stuff that exists in the business of it. But once again, the hardest thing is just getting above the noise. And mm -hmm. I would say this. It's important to have successes that are trackable. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, that was a single on the radio and how many people went out and sound scanned your CD, right? That yeah. was your hard data. You mm -hmm. knew it was getting advertised, if you will, on the radio. And we knew that that equaled a certain amount of driving people to the store to buy it. Mm -hmm. But there weren't a lot of other metrics. And how many people are buying tickets to a show? Those were our three, yeah. I guess. Mm -hmm. Now there are thousands of them. But I would say to a new artist, hey, don't worry. Don't get hung up on trying to have one song or one video or one thing that's going to bust you through because I don't think there's anything you can do these days in one day that's going to make your career. And that's good or bad. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can step in a fall down the mud puddle and ruin your career any more than you can have one thing go viral and make your career. Mm -hmm. I think a career is just that. It's like, hey, if I'm a doctor, I'm going to invest a bunch of years in school and then I'm going to do an internship and then I'm going to do a residency and then I've got the rest of my life till I get tired of being a doctor or can't any longer. Right. Right. And I mm -hmm. think that's how you got to look at it as an artist, as a music maker, whether that be, you know, a touring artist or any other type of artist. I think you got to set your mind to this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to be my best at it. And this right now, you have the opportunity to put stuff out to get it exposed and to see how people react to it. Mm -hmm. And it's scalable. So meaning this, I don't really care about somebody that shows up that has a song that has, let's just say it's got 3 million spins, wherever they come from. I don't care if it's YouTube or whatever. So they get 3 million. Well, great. But how many of those were bought? How many of those were accidental? How many of those are? They're on a playlist with a bunch of other people. So we don't know if they showed up for you. Right. You can certainly find out if it's fake. Right. Mm -hmm. If somebody just bought two million of the three million. But I'd rather have somebody that I can verify they got a hundred thousand streams on a song because people truly like the song. Mm -hmm. People truly dig what this guy's doing and he's working towards something that's legit as opposed to a blip on the screen. Mm -hmm. Here's a great example. Promotion of music honestly isn't much different than it used to be. With radio, it's your relationships that got you a chance to have a hit, right? Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. if you want to get in the big playlist, if you want to have some successes with, if you will, today's radio, which I would say is as much Spotify and Apple Music and Prime as it is traditional radio, if not more so. Sure. And it is your relationships. If you have a great relationship with the people that do those programs or set up those playlists, you have an advantage, certainly, over just somebody they have no idea who they are. Mm -hmm. But... One thing it won't do for you, years ago, you could have a song on the radio and it could get pushed fairly far up the chart. If people absolutely hated it, eventually it would shoot you down. Mm -hmm. They're calling those stations saying, please don't play the song. We hate that song. It's awful, whatever. That'll eventually get to you. But it can take a while. With all the streaming services, man, you know it dang near instantly. Mm -hmm. if it's going to work, if it is working, at what rate it's working. So you can't falsify the records. You can't have a, if you will, a turntable hit, which is what they used to call them, which just meant it spun like crazy on the radio. But at the end of the day, people weren't moved enough. They weren't passionate about it enough to go buy it yeah. or to go maybe buy a concert ticket. Right. 
nowadays you can get the data. So if you're brand new and nobody knows your voice, blah, 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 and you're in a playlist, there's going to be some skips. Mm-hmm. People aren't quite acclimated to you yet. And they aren't quite sure if they like it or not or whatever. If they thumbs down you more than they should, then we know we definitely have something that's not going to continue. If they thumbs up you or if they listen to you or repeat you more and tell more friends about it, then you've got data that's just flat out, it's irrefutable. Mm-hmm. People respond to this. And so that's the part about it. I think it levels the playing field more in that there's no incentive for most of the streaming services to put something in a playlist that people hate. It's not helping anybody. It's not All helping right. the artist. In fact, you'll create haters more than you'll create fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the original question? I think I talked my way right out of it. <laughs> well, it was about kind of how an artist gets on your radar with proving that they are a successful small business. A reset. Thank you. Yeah. So my thought is I would much rather, and I think our team at Average Joe's would much rather see an artist with lower numbers, but really solid, trackable, solid, legit. Like, hey, this guy didn't start out because if you buy a bunch of stuff, that doesn't mean people love it. That just means you told a bunch of people about it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's really what that is. What I want to see is not that you told 3 million people about it. I want to see that you told 100 people about it, and they told 100 people about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can scale that any way you want to. Yes, most record labels, just like I said earlier, if we were starting a record label, and we had that option of a brand new, well-deserving artist that nobody knows, and one that is successful, has had some success, and has enough of a career ahead of them, we'd invest in that artist because we're not trying to figure out if they're truly an artist or if they truly have a career. We're trying to partner with them to make it a bigger one, yeah, preferably a way bigger one. And that's ultimately, I think, what most record labels ultimately do. A great manager's job is to get you more than you deserve, right? Uh, yeah. At every turn. That's really every it. Turn. Because he's either doing that or he isn't. And whether that means a record deal or a better advance or better shows or a better tour, or just go down the list of things it could mean. That's their job. A record label's job is to get your music more exposed than you can do it on your own. But this day and age, they want to know, if possible, what's our trajectory? And that's why we would like to have an artist. He doesn't have to have giant numbers, but we need to have an artist where we can see like, hey, this is a small business, but it's a successful small business. Mm-hmm. So that means there's a good chance we can make it a successful medium size or, or, or large business, maybe. Maybe huge business. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, nobody has the crystal ball, right? Or we'd all just be writing achy, breaky hearts all day long. Exactly. Yeah. Or whatever. That's all we'd ever do. You know, why do anything different? It's a lot easier to build a big fire out of a small fire than it is to build a big fire out of no fire. When you start out with just a little tiny kindling, if a rain comes along or the wind blows funny, you mm-hmm. can put your fire out. Yeah. yeah. If you've got a big enough fire going, it can rain mm-hmm. and you're good. The yeah. sucker's still burning. The water can't get down to the coals, so it can't put it out. Yeah. I do feel sorry. Sorry is really not probably the right word, but I feel for the new artists, new songwriters, new everybody that are new to the business for two reasons. One being how tough it is, just Mm -hmm. that everybody and their uncle now can make a record, whether it's great or not great. Everybody can make a record now. And then two, COVID has really changed this. But for Nashville, there was a real like apprenticeship approach to music. 
mm-hmm. you were a new writer, they brought you into the publishing company and you got to hang with the guys that had success. You'd get to write with the guys that had success. They would help you. They'd hold your hand through the process. You would learn in one or two years what would probably take you a decade to learn on your own by hit and miss, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, by room. chance. Yeah. And now I would say the same thing. Of course, it's changed now. But I would say as artists growing their careers, that sort of happens now with the social media companies, the people that kind of help you get above all the noise. Because nobody just innately knows exactly what to do. And you need people to have experience to make you better than you are, to give you more than you deserve. That's true. I have a question that's a little bit of a pivot. But, you know, of course, I come at everything mostly from a songwriter point of view, because that's what Mm -hmm. I do. In your A&R role and your producer role, I know you listen to outside songs because thank you for listening to some of mine. But Absolutely. What landmines should writers avoid when submitting songs for a project? What makes for a good pitch and what makes for some common mistakes that may come across your desk or your email inbox when you're looking for songs for a Eddie Montgomery or a Colt Ford or whatever project you're working on? Two major ones is this. A, don't send me a bunch of songs. If you can't figure out which of the 12 songs you should send, don't make me do your job for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there's the first one. I've been guilty of that one in the past, but thankfully not so much in the past decade. I think I got like 6,000 MP3 sitting in my inbox right now that I have not listened to. Mm-hmm. And that's just me with a little record label and I'm nobody. So I can't imagine what it's like if you're Scott Borchetta or somebody that's literally at the top peak of the music business. It's got to be ridiculous. So if you get somebody to listen to one, maybe two songs, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. In a day. It just is. So don't do that. Second, I would really recommend not sending them anything that sounds like the song they just put out, mm-hmm. which is what I find most of the time is that songwriters, you want to pitch to Aldine. Well, whatever you're hearing from Jason Aldine right now, whatever's on the radio, whatever's on his latest record, that was maybe a year ago, mm-hmm. six months ago anyway, for most of the major artists. So whatever you're hearing right now, they created some months ago, if not even longer. So you're doing exactly what you're hearing right now. You're already way behind the curve Mm -hmm. and you got to think, okay, they're not going to record again for some months probably. So by the time they get around to recording, do they want to record something that is identical to what they just recorded a year and a half ago? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Now, as a songwriter, I have had songs recorded because they sound a lot like what's going on right now on the radio. And most Mm -hmm. of those are going to come from the new artist who's in the studio right now and there's a sound or there's something that's happening big and everybody wants to get on the bandwagon mm-hmm. no different if you're a car dealer and people are buying black jacked up pickup trucks if you don't have any black jacked up pickup trucks on your lot you're dummy yeah mm-hmm. but, but you don't want a whole lot full of black jacked up pickup trucks because the day is coming it's on the horizon where people aren't going to want those at least not like they want them right now yeah, I tell writers, most of them that I talk to that I think are real talented, I tell them, do two things, man. Write what it is you do best, mm-hmm. which hopefully nobody else can do exactly like that. And secondly, don't spend a ton of time chasing what's going on right now because that's the past you're chasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, At least try to shoot for where you think it might be headed. If you are going to write something that's on the radio right now, then at least write for the bleeding edge of it, right? Mm-hmm. Don't write from yeah. the trailing edge of it. I think both those are such good pieces of advice. And I've probably been guilty of both at times. I'm sure I have been. I know I have been on sending too many songs because <laughs> you feel like, well, I've got so many. But do you really have five hits for Tim McGraw sitting around that no one's 
cut yet. You really got five number ones for him. And so I just want to put a pin in what you said or highlight it like 6,000. And if an email comes in that says 10 hits for Eddie Montgomery. Okay. First of all, you probably don't know what you're talking about because you probably don't. Unless I know you, if you have 10 hits ready, I probably already know who you are. If I don't know who you are, you sound like <laughs> you don't know what's going on. And I don't want to open that email because that's a lot of work. Let me open this email that has one song. And really, that's it. This first song is the most important anyway. Because mm-hmm. if you do send somebody 10 songs, they're probably not going to list all 10 unless I've solicited the song. Yeah. Or it's a buddy of mine that's written songs for other projects that we're working on. Or, you know, there's a connection there. There's a no like, and trust factor. Exactly. And he's not sending me 10 songs going like, listen to these 10 today. He's going like, hey, here's 10 songs I feel like are worthy of a listen. Please get to them when you can. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And on a Saturday, when you find 20 extra minutes, if you have it, that's when you click on those links and you can run through those songs pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So the first one's all that matters, because if you send them a link with 10 and the first one doesn't sound like a hit song to them, they're not listening to the other nine. They're done. Mm-hmm. It'd be far better to get those 10 songs listened to by soliciting the first one and having them get back. You're going, hey, man, you got any more? <laughs> and I'll tell you one other tip I would recommend is this, and I think it works. Just send the best song you have. If it doesn't sound like it's a Tim McGraw song, okay. Unless you have a song where you're like, man, this has to be cut by Tim McGraw or whoever that artist is. That's one thing. But aside from that, just send what you think is the best song you have. Because Mm -hmm. if it doesn't sound like him, maybe that artist is changing directions. Maybe it will for the next record, Mm -hmm. you know. And if somebody sends you a great song, because I love great songs. I don't have to write it to love it. Mm -hmm. And you hear it. And you're like, wow, that's a great song. I got a little folder full of what I would consider great songs that I found that aren't right for this particular project, either because we've already got a bunch of songs in that vein, or it's just not lyrically quite correct for the artist or even musically, but it's a great song. So I put that in my little keepers folder Mm -hmm. because eventually I circle back to it for every project and I go back and listen to songs I thought were amazing and see, man, are any of these amazing songs right? for this artist right now. So I would just say, send a great song. And even if it doesn't land on this one, there's a good chance that all of those guys making records, Dan Huff, I guarantee you has a keeper folder on his laptop Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. somewhere. And if I'm doing it, I'm just this fella from Illinois, man. Trust me, the big dogs are doing it. They know where the great songs are and they keep them when they hear them. And they're thankful to have had the opportunity to listen. Yeah. And if a songwriter just sends me a great song, you can even send a note, say, I don't know that this would work for your artist right this second, but this is one of my favorite songs, and I just wanted you to hear it. Mm-hmm. Then what happens is this. Then that door is always cracked. Yeah, You don't have to kick that sucker open anymore. That door is open. Maybe not all the way, but it's mm-hmm. open. And when you have the perfect song at the right time, that guy will cut that song because he'll listen to the next one because you sent him a great song. Yeah. You know, you can't have a bad pitch if it's a great song. It just may not be right for the artist. And, and you've kind of alluded to that, too. It's not just about, is a song great? It's also, is the song right for this particular artist at this particular time for this particular project? And that can be tricky. Man, that's the biggest crapshoot, really. Mm-hmm. All things being equal. Let's just say every song that gets pitched is a A song, which they're all not, certainly. But let's mm-hmm. just say they are. A pluses. Every song you hear and you listen to 2,000 of them, well, great. There's only 10 going on the record. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't matter. It isn't like we only found 10 great songs out of 2,000. Let's say they're all great songs that you listen to for these. 
you still can only do 10 of them at a time or however many you're cutting right now. Yeah. That's just how it is. A great song always wins. And I find that they resurface. I had a song that was a single for Emerson Drive. It's been cut five times. It was a hit in by a different artist in Canada. We won like a song of the, I think song of the year or something. I can't remember. Yeah, like songwriter of the year. I don't know what it was, but we won something at the CCMA Awards with it. So I guess what I'm saying is like a great song sometimes, and I'm not trying to brag about my great song. I mean, I just luckily wrote a song that somebody liked. But That's a great song, Noah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) the most important thing is that if it moves one person, probably move a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, ended up getting cut by Ty Herndon and John Barry, and it's been cut a ton of times, And which reminds me also way back in the early days of the record business, if there was a bona fide hit song out, all the major artists would all do the same song. Mm-hmm. You'd buy your Kenny Rogers version of it, or, you know, pick the artist. Mel Torme would do a version of it. Mm-hmm. Elvis had cut a version. It was way common back then. Yeah, I remember in the 90s, I think it was in the 90s, where it was really odd that Trisha Yearwood and Leanne Rimes both put out How Do I Live, like right about the same time. I think one was for a movie and then one was just a single, and that had become so uncommon at the time that we were all like, whoa competing singles on the same song. I heard, and I could be wrong because you hear a lot of rumors, but I heard that the Leanne Rhymes version was the one essentially commissioned for the movie. When they got it done, they weren't too crazy about it. And the people that were doing the movie actually got Trisha Yearwood to do a version. And Leanne Rhymes and Curb Records were so teed off that they said, well, fine, well, we're putting our version out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I, I heard. Now, you know, a call to Chuck Howard would probably straighten that out. He'd be the guy to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about I Swear right now with uh-huh. Boys to Men and John Montgomery and number ones like in multiple genres because the song was so good. Yeah. Well, you know, when country songs get remade into pop or rock, they tend to be some of the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that, certainly in the 90s that happened, but I think a lot of that tr- has to do with the fact that the lyric on those is so strong. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying the pop music isn't, but I think pop and rock music are sometimes driven more from a melody and an overall sound mm-hmm. as much as the lyric. The lyric is sometimes maybe secondary in the process. It's often secondary. I would go so far as yeah, to say. Yeah, especially in rock and roll. I mean, and it's a band. They come up with all the stuff. They'll even sometimes cut the music and then send the music and the lead singer will take the music and go write some lyrics to it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that works. Charlie Daniels did that almost exclusively. And I've been fly on the wall at several of his sessions where he'll bring his whole band in. Sometimes he'll have a hook. Sometimes he'll have just an idea. Sometimes it'll just be a musical idea. The whole band will come up with the music, the track, if you will. They'll record it full tilt with solos and parts and maybe not a complete finished track, but real close, then he'll do rough mixes of them, take them up to the house and write lyrics to all those songs that they've recorded. And that's how those Charlie Daniels records come to be. Wow. And you can't tell that from listening because it's all strong. It definitely worked for him. That's the way I did it when I was an artist. And you probably could tell that from listening. (laughs) (laughs) That's the difference between you and Charlie Daniels. (laughs) It isn't like somebody just handed Charlie, here's music, now go write lyrics to it. I mean, he was part of the fabric of all Mm. of that from inception. So that's, I think, what also doesn't make it feel like it's uh, left-footed or a bad fit. It all feels dovetailed together because 
he was a big part of both processes. If you look like I'm Devlin down at George is a great example. All the band members are also co-writers on that because Mm -hmm. they all made the music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's names on there because everybody created their part, which fed, you know, and it isn't just the bass part because it feeds off of what the keyboard player does and vice versa Mm -hmm. and what Charlie does and what he plays. So you have all that kind of woven together. And let's face it. I mean, even like a devil went down to Georgia. Yes, the lyric is super important, but there's a lot of it about there's a lot of it that is so musical. You're jerked into that thing way before you know what the song is about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, musical works. I promise not to hum any more fiddle licks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God bless Charlie. I know we're coming up on an hour now, and I warned you that we had more to ask you than we had time for. So we should probably start bringing it down the home stretch here. You got it. your time. But Johnny, do you have anything that you've been sitting on that you were wanting to ask? No, I'm just curious if maybe there's a couple go-to tools in your toolbox that you'll use aside from radio and touring that you're trying to utilize to get exposure for your artists, the non-traditional exposure, what are your two go-to tools for that? Well, there's always at any given time, whatever is social media at the moment is going to change, right? Uh Mm -hmm. A buddy of mine, Bob Regan had a good one. He said, love Bob. He said, change, change is coming. So you can either stand in the corner and wait for it to get there and beat the hell out of you, (laughs) or you can meet it halfway across the floor and dance with it. So (laughs) the youngsters that handle all of that kind of stuff from a promotional standpoint, I'd have to defer to them to let them answer because they know far more about it than I ever will. But my go-to thing, I think, is always trying to figure out what is the most honest. I think if you have something that's honest, I think it strikes a chord with people. And I think those things, whether it be a song, a soundbite, a little interview, any of those things, if there's a lot of heart in it, it affects people. Mm -hmm. And if it sounds like you're trying to make something out of nothing, it sounds like it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the most important thing is to do something that really rings true. And then it doesn't matter what format you're trying to get it out to your fans on. It'll work. There you go. Love it. I love it. Brent, you got anything else before we wrap it up? No, man. There's so much value in that, Noah. And I think both sides of our listenership, the artists and the writers, are going to get so much out of this one. So I just want to thank you for uh, going with us on this ride. Very uh, varied topics. So thank you for being brave and jumping right in. I think it's really good stuff. So thanks for your time on this. Yes, thanks. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully there's something worth listening to that came out of my mouth. And if not, please edit it out. (laughs) we'll do both for you no that takes us to the end of another killer climb episode guys remember to subscribe to the podcast join the climb community leave a rating and review and tell a friend about it that's the best way to just the way we talked about blowing up artists here if you tell a friend about it they're going to understand we can help them out too this podcast exists because we want you to win so keep on climbing and we'll see you at the top It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.